Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. We have such a special show for you today, backed by popular demand for a third session. She's none other than Mitzi Perdue, and we spoke about the founding of Sheraton Hotels during the Great Depression. We spoke about her philanthropic work in support of combating human trafficking. Today's show is an extract of a conversation that I had with Mitzi earlier this week. On today's show, we're talking about multi-generational legacy. All the way from Salisbury, Maryland, welcome to the show, Mitzi Perdue. Well, it's a complete joy to be with you. And at the moment, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Oh, that's right. That's right. You were just speaking at EarthX, correct? This morning and this afternoon, I taped three television shows, three half-hour shows. Wow. And four. I've been looking forward all day. This is my dessert, something that's just really fun and not work. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Mitzi, we're here to talk about real estate. We'll talk about far more than that, of course. Why don't you start with a little bit of your backstory growing up in the Henderson household at a time maybe not that different from today where, you know, it's a tough time to be in the hotel business. Let me share a little bit about growing up in basically a real estate family, because I think father always thought he was the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotel Corporation, but he was always very, very aware that he was in real estate. But to answer your question about what it was like growing up with a family that was during the Great Depression, this was a period when everybody was running away from hotels just as fast as they possibly could. I mean, I think it was understood that if you were in the hotel aspect of the real estate business, how about it was a fast one-way ticket to bankruptcy? So the question that I would imagine people would wonder, you know, given today that it's also some really tough times, how is father able to make a success of hotels when everybody else, as far as I can tell, everybody else in the Northern Hemisphere was, was running away from hotels? The question is, how did he do it? And I, as a child, was always asking him that question. I was born in the 1940s, and the period I'm going to describe right now was in the 1930s. It was, how about the height of the Great Depression? And I knew that father was a very successful man. So, you know, as a kid, I'm asking him, how did you do this? And here's what he told me. He said that whenever he would take over a hotel, it would always be because it was on the verge of bankruptcy. And, you know, there were great many such hotels during the height of the Great Depression. And he said that the success of the Sheraton Hotels at every level was due to the people that worked there. At that difficult time, obviously access to capital was difficult. What was his source of capital to go on an acquisition binge, even though they were great deals? Wouldn't that have been the constraint? Well, first of all, he told me that if a hotel is on the verge of bankruptcy and nobody is bidding against him, you really are getting pennies on the dollar. But the source of capital initially, he and his roommate from college, who became a business partner for life, and also his brother, the three of them had served in World War I. And as a result of that, when they pulled the war bonuses that they had gotten probably around 1918 or something, they invested them and they invested the $1,000. They invested it during the time of the great German inflation. They could buy things like binoculars that might be worth a hundred or so dollars, but with inflation, they could get them almost for pennies. 
and taking advantage of, of currency exchanges and being able to sell things that you would buy in an inflation-harmed country like Germany at that time, they could make their $1,000 grow. So that by 1933, when he got into the first hotel, they had enough to buy it. And I can't tell you how much they paid for it, but I can tell you that the source of capital for that first one was they did have enough to buy their first hotel. But then, because father had discovered this wonderful way of getting people to be inspired and to go the extra mile and to love what they were doing and to you know feel just huge engagement, the hotel would turn around and in a fairly short time, it would be throwing off enough money so that they could buy two hotels and then four. So the source of the money initially was $1,000 but it did grow enough to enable them to have a down payment to buy a hotel that was on the verge of bankruptcy. Which brings me to a story mm -hmm. that you all might like to know, which is how Sheraton got its name. I'd love to hear that. My, yeah. All right. My father's name was Henderson. My uncle's name was Henderson. The third partner was name was Moore. So how did it get to be Sheraton? Well, the third hotel that they ever bought my goodness, can you hear a uh, motorcycle racing in the back? <laughs> I hope you can't, but there is. But to continue, so th they have the third hotel they bought. It was in Springfield, Massachusetts. And we're talking probably maybe 1934 by now, maybe 1935. But this hotel back then had something that was just state-of-the-art exciting technology. It was a neon sign. And the neon sign great big, you know, probably six foot high letters that had cost, that neon sign had cost $10,000. And it was on top of the hotel, letting the city know that there, that the Sheraton Hotel was there. And this is the hotel that father had bought. Well, by the third hotel, father figured out that it's you know, a really good idea to have one name just for advertising purposes. And as a good New England Yankee, he didn't want to tear down and waste a $10,000 sign. And then on top of that, he thought Sheraton has a nice ring to it. And he felt Henderson did not have a nice ring to it. So that's how Sheraton got its name, that somebody had invested in a $10,000 sign that father just couldn't tear down. Wow. How fascinating. I love that. I love that story. Let's talk a little bit about, well, actually, let's go here because, you know, you're speaking very eloquently. And of course, I didn't know you back then, but I've heard that when you were younger, you were quite shy. Uh, there was a period in my life up until maybe age 38 in which I was so shy. It was genuinely hard for me to enter a room of strangers. I mean, how about close to impossible? I was so shy that it was, I, I can remember times of, Say I had to call one of my kids' teachers. What I'm, what I'm about to share with you is literally true. I could sit in the edge of the bed for half an hour, you know, with the phone by my side, working up the courage to call the kids' teacher. Then why would I be so shy? Well, the answer is I actually had a pretty severe lisp. And a lisp, it's... It's not just something that you hear. It's also something, if it's bad enough, and mine was bad enough, it's also something that you see. And when I got to know various people you know, really well over the years, I'd over and over again hear that when they first met me, they thought I was stupid. And you know, if, if you're meeting strangers and, and you know that they assume that you're stupid, how about that induces shyness? But 
something happened in my life at age 38 that turned absolutely everything around. And I'm going to assume that most of you don't have incapacitating lists, but I hope there's something to my story anyway. And it's the following. At that period in my life, I did have a job. I was a rice farmer. And in case you're wondering if you heard me right, yeah, I really do mean rice, the stuff that if you were in Japan, you might eat with chopstick. Yum. Okay, so I was growing rice, which was great for somebody who was terribly, 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 terribly shy because you don't have to interact with many people. But here's something that happened to me, and it happened to me. It was a year that completely changed my life around. It changed me from being, you know, people would describe me as being insufferably shy. There was a tenant farmer who worked for me who had expected, he had an IQ of over 200, but he was a rice grower. He was a tenant on my farm. And he had this IQ of over 200, and he was in a, in a job that didn't challenge his mind at all, or at least not much, not, not at the capacity that he was capable of. But he, he had kind of like a side aspiration. He wanted to write a great book. And he had conceived of this idea at age 20, but you know, at 20, it'd be much too presumptuous to write a great book that would change people's lives. And by the way, the title of it was Life, an Owner's Manual. Well, at 20, you know, he's much too young to advise people how to live, but he started collecting information on it. And decade after decade, he's amassing more and more and more information on, on this great book that could help enrich people's lives. But he was always putting it off until at age 68, in this period when I'm 38, the man was diagnosed with terminal heart disease, which meant that he'd never write this book that he'd spent his whole life preparing for. And, you know, anybody who's, who's diagnosed with a terminal disease, you know, what could be worse? Well, I have a nomination that something could be worse. And my nomination is, what if you've spent your whole life preparing for something and suddenly, you know, you're going to die before you can complete it? I mean, I, I can't think of anything more horrifying, but they'd intervened. It turned out that, I think we're talking maybe 40 years ago, that the Pritikin Clinic in Southern California had a simply remarkable record for turning around terminal heart disease. People whose, whose arteries were occluded as much as, I'm, I'm going to use a, a fake name to protect the guilty, but we will call him Peter Smith. His arteries were so occluded that they didn't think that they could keep him alive long enough for a quadruple bypass. He went to the Pritikin Clinic, and a month later, with diet, exercise, meditation, he lost 15 pounds. He eventually lost 30 pounds. His heart revascularized. He lived another 30 years. Woo! So he comes back. And now a man who couldn't walk across my, you know, the, the floor of my office without just crippling angina pain, all of a sudden he could walk 10, 12 miles and love it. And I'm thinking, this is just one of the most exciting things I've ever heard, a miracle. And I tell him, Peter, this is so wonderful. Write your book. And he says, yes, I'm just about to. I just have to study a little more and I'll be ready to start writing it. Well, at that point, I realized that he never would write it. And I also knew him well enough to know why he was never going to write it. He was afraid of failure. And that meant that he did the one thing that was guaranteed to produce failure, and that's not to try. And that made me look at my own life. And I decided pretty much that day 
that I was going to make my life the opposite of Peter Smith. And if something looks difficult, uh, in this case, take overcoming a lisp, which was holding me back from everything else that I wanted to do, I decided that I would redefine failure. And failure was not giving it your all, not giving everything that you're capable of to get the goal that you want. And I went to a speech therapist, something that I, I should have done maybe 20 years ago. But I think I was putting that off because fear of failure really kept me from, you know, if I had a bad enough lisp, I didn't have to put myself out in the line and try. Well, I went to a speech therapist and she said, at age 38, we don't have the tools to help you. Can't help you. So I went to another speech therapist. Same story. Went to a third speech therapist. And she said, at your age, you know, with the tools that we have available right now, can't help you. But she also kind of added a PS, but I'd be happy to take your money if you want to try. Well, I worked on it, you know, a couple of appointments a week for almost nine months, no progress whatsoever, because I couldn't hear the difference. I couldn't form, you know, when you make an S correctly, there's all sorts of things that you do with your tongue, but if you have a bad enough lisp, there are no muscles available to do it even. But somewhere around nine months, I began to be able to hear it, and gradually, 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 by a year, I was done with the lisp. And I began trying for what I really wanted to do in life since being a little girl. I wanted a career in communication. I began auditioning for radio and television. And within a year, I, as somebody too shy to use the telephone, suddenly had a television show. I also had a radio show. And within a year, I took the Dale Carnegie salesmanship course because I wanted to get it syndicated. And I thought, I don't know anything about salesmanship, but what's standing in the way between me and syndication and making lots more money was selling it. And for the rest of my life, by redefining failure and getting past this list, I've had a really pretty happy life. So I can't look into your eyes and know if there's something that holds you back. But if it's fear of failure, redefine failure. The one way to guarantee failure is not to try for whatever it is that you want. And if you don't immediately get what it is that you want, how about when you get that turned down or you don't make that deal or you don't make that contact, or maybe you don't get into that club. I don't know what it would be in your case, but whatever it is, it's not a failure because if you gave it everything you had, then along the line, you probably took courses, you probably listened to podcasts, you probably read books, you probably attended conventions or met people. And no matter what, just the effort of trying is going to put you farther along the road to success. So that's my story about overcoming shyness. I love that. There's so much wisdom wrapped up in that. And thank you for sharing that. I know it's a deeply personal story, but there's a lot of power in that, a lot of power in that. And interacting with you, you know, on a daily, weekly basis, as we have over the last little while, I see the power behind you in the way that you launch yourself at some of your initiatives that we'll get to a little bit later in this section. But um, there's, there's a lot of power there, and it came from intrinsic motivation. And uh, it's, it's kind of what you talked about at the beginning. It, you know, it wasn't driven by fear. You were driven by fear at the beginning, and it wasn't driven by bribery. It was, 
your own inspiration that caused you to do that? I feel that I think there's a drive in all of us to be all we can be. And if fear holds you back, yeah, get past it. But, you know, Father, he was, I think that he was being in the hospitality industry because that is what the hotel industry was and is. It's, you know, it's dealing with the public and making them feel welcomed and and their needs met. And just, I mean, I, I grew up with the idea that hospitality was just one of the best things in the world to do. But Father initially was probably the last person that you would ever imagine, this is initially, to be in the hospitality industry. Because at age 26, he'd just gotten engaged to my mother, and he got one of the most almighty wake-up calls you could imagine, because my mother came east to Boston from Wheeling, West Virginia, to meet her future family. And grandmother Berta, father's mother, told my mother, don't marry Ernest, he can never stick with anything. You'll end up poor. Now, can you imagine your own mother saying that? And mother's answer was, I don't care. I love him. And they did get married. But it was a wake-up call for father because by age 26, he hadn't been able to stick with anything. If his own mother's telling his, you know, the love of his life, don't marry him, he had to do something about it. So he went to a career guidance counselor. And the man, his name was John Sir Connor told him after the end of like eight hours of testing everything you could think about, about why Ernest was unable to stick with anything, Johnson O'Connor told father, you know, my career as a career guidance counselor, I've never seen anybody with worse human relations skills. He advised father, because you've got this handicap, but you're a bright fellow, I recommend a career as a scientist. You'll probably do pretty well if you're in a laboratory, maybe discovering things or inventing things or whatever, where you don't have to interact with people. Well, father took that as a challenge. And again, this is something that he told me in during my childhood. He said, you know, when you really think it through, almost all the satisfactions that you want in life, all the forward motion that you have that you want in life, they're going to come through people. So he made it a life study to figure out what makes people tick. And I knew he took salesmanship courses. He took speaking courses. He'd read books in psychology. He'd take courses. And later in life, when he, when he was you know, a big, important hotel man, he would invite some of the leading psychologists of the day to spend a weekend at, at our country home. Like I grew up with Eddie Bernays, who was, I believe, the father of modern advertising, or B.F. Skinner, who was a, a famous Harvard psychologist, he did everything that he could to crack the code of what makes people tick. And his greatest deficit, he put so much effort into overcoming it that it's almost as if he overshot, he became extraordinarily good at it. And that gave him the tools because he had thought so long and hard about it that gave him the tools to have an understanding on those those early days when he'd be standing up in front of, of the employees of a newly acquired hotel, he knew what they were thinking. He understood that they that they wouldn't hear a word he said until their pains were addressed. He knew about motivating them. He knew about giving them a greater vision of themselves. But I don't think that he would have excelled at this if he hadn't put so much personal effort into overcoming his really pretty extraordinary deficit. And I've sometimes thought at the time of his death, he had 400 hotels and he became 
pretty good, good public speaker. He was so motivational to the people who worked with him that I would say that it's fair to say that they absolutely loved him. He was a beloved figure. And look how just the study of human nature and, and what made people tick, having a deeper understanding of that than most, enabled him to go from no employees to 20,000 at the time of his death and from no hotels to 400 at the time of his death. That, that is so powerful. Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about being part of a multi-generational family. You also married into a family that was doing very well business-wise. You married Frank Perdue, who's best known for Purdue Farms, Purdue Chicken fame. At times lauded in the industry, at times catching its, its fair share of criticism as well. We've turned that around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But maybe Actually, the can I can I can I address that? Absolutely. Because, Love you because I think that's relevant to people too. Yes, we've had our fair share of things not going the way we want. And Jim Purdue, to my mind, is just crazy brilliant in how he responded to bad publicity. We were a huge target of animal rights people. So how do you address that? Here's what Jim Purdue did. He invited representatives of the major animal rights organizations to come to his home or to come to Salisbury, Maryland for two or three days. And he'd show him through the plants, he'd show him through the chicken houses, he'd show them what the constraints we were under, but he'd also ask them, you know, now that you see what the situation is, what do you recommend? And we'll do everything that we can to implement it. And he'd even invite them to his home for dinner you know, 20 or 30 people who in theory ought to be at his throat. But at the end, we call these animal welfare summits. And I think that we've just had, I mean, I'm losing track, but I think it's the fifth animal welfare summit that we've just had. And people who were our greatest critics, to my mind, are now some of our greatest advocates because, you know, we let them in, we listened to them, we implemented whatever we could. And when we couldn't, that let's see why we couldn't. And you know, isn't that just a brilliant approach to, to dealing with when you've been on the wrong track, to invite your critics to come in and into the tent and to help deal with the problem? Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's genius. That's, that's leadership. That's leadership. I, it takes my breath away. I admire him so much. I love that. When Frank was diagnosed, he had Parkinson's, correct? He did. He would have obviously left a significant inheritance. Talk a little bit about the difference between inheritance and legacy. Well, Frank was diagnosed with Parkinson when he was in his 80s. And both of us knew that uh, you don't recover from Parkinson's. I mean, you can hope that you that it takes a while to take its toll. But you know, both of us, when you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, it, it gets you to thinking of legacy. And Frank and I talked about the issue of legacy. And he devoted a lot of time to it. And both of us had seen firsthand, you know, with, with people that we knew well, how easy it is for the kids of wealthy people to really mess up their lives. And if I didn't have such great respect for all of you and want to use ladylike languages, I wouldn't use the word people screw up their lives. <laughs> but they do, if they aren't given the values that will help them navigate life. And so, Frank, you know, we're thinking, how do we help kids avoid rich man's disease? And I, I bet every one of you 
can think of families, whether, whether they're famous or maybe they're not famous, but they're personally known to you, where the kids in one way or another just totally mess up their lives because wealth ruined them. In fact, we have a saying at Purdue, and you know, it's not original, but nevertheless, it's one, one we say, adversity creates character, prosperity creates monsters. Well, if you come from a wealthy family, how do you get the people with character as opposed to being monsters? And Frank's assessment of all of this was, are the kids brought up with values? And you know, his, his immediate children, yeah, they're doing great because they were brought up with values. What about when you get to grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and we're now at great-great-grandchildren? How do you do it? And we decided that in addition to leaving material goods, we would leave values and in the form of an ethical will, which Frank didn't invent this, but he sure as heck carried it out. We spent, I mean, I tracked this. We spent three days of total immersion writing the values that we thought that would give people well, those who came after us, the best chance of having a fulfilling, happy life where they could look back at the end of their days and think, I led a good life, which is certainly you know, what Frank wanted for them, what I want for them. And we came up with about 50 things that we thought would help. But Frank reasoned that 50 values, nobody's going to, that's just too many. No, nobody's going to act on 50 that would have to narrow it down. We narrowed it down to 10. And I'll repeat some of the ones. The first one, which I thought, well, I, I just thought it was brilliant because it's the basis of so much. I mean, trust is, is just hugely important in human relations. So his number one value in his ethical will out of 10 was be honest, always. The second one was be someone whom others are justified in trusting. Third, if you say you're going to do something, do it. And then others are, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. If you really genuinely want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. And anyway, there, there are 10 of them and a really neat thing he arranged because he wanted them to have maximum impact. He had 10 grandchildren at this point. At his funeral, he had each, each grandchild read one of the 10 parts of his ethical will. And then I had them engraved on brass plaques. And so each family member has a brass plaque with the 10 parts of the ethical will. And when new kids reach the age of 16, when new family members reach the age of 16, they get one of these brass plaques. Or when somebody marries in, they're given one of these brass plaques with the 10 principles of the ethical will. And I would say that it has enormous impact on the family because you know, we often refer to it. People tell me they keep it on their desks and read it over and over again. I mean, they're just things that guide you in life. I'll quote another one that I just think it's so darn useful as a guide for life. And that is treat people with respect, always, no exceptions. And doesn't that principle take you a long way if you're treating every single person with respect, no exceptions? Absolutely. And they're so simple. They're, they're almost biblical in their simplicity. And yet there's something about the process of thinking it through, writing it down, committing to it, and just making it part of your family's governance. You know, the act of kind of synthesizing and boiling down what's really important to you. 
I think that's just a fabulous, you know, if you're over 60, heck, if you're over 20, but more realistically, if you're over 60, do this. Think what values you would like to leave to those who come after you. And then when you make an ethical will, put a lot of effort into thinking of how you will make it part of the family's culture. I mean, don't just write it down and, and then never think of it again. Now, uh, have it something that's read at family meetings, maybe engrave it in brass. You know, this is one of the best legacies that you can leave, which is the chance for those who come after you to have a good life, the kind where you have friends who trust and respect you, where you have business dealings, where people want to come towards you rather than run away from you. Yeah, it's just, I don't think I could recommend it strongly enough because just the act of writing it is good for you and the act of receiving it is good for those who come after you. That is so beautiful. When you look at the next generation, how have members of the family internalized it? Do you see it? Do you have any monsters? Okay, I hope I'm not proven wrong by this, but <laughs> no, I think they're exceptional. I mean, I'm so proud of them. This is a value that that's just so cultural that Frank didn't need to include it in the ethical will, but it's something that I think grounds people fabulously, and that is to be frugal, that you get your identity out of serving others rather than out of wearing expensive labels. Well, Mitzi, this was amazing. Uh, as always, uh, the time we get to spend together is always magical. So thank you for that. Any uh, any closing thoughts? Yes, there's a closing thought I just can't keep to myself. Sorry. Victor has played such a role in this that I hardly know what to say. Between contacts and advice and I think making me a bigger person. I'm as grateful as a person can be to you, Victor, because you've had a huge impact on, how about my courage level, <laughs> my energy level, and I think I even dare say my success level. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Look, I'm, I'm, you're doing all the heavy lifting. I've made some helpful introductions. And, and how? <laughs> well, thank you for that. And, and I'm happy to contribute, really just thrilled to contribute and it's an important cause and you're an amazing person and I'm just thrilled to be part of it. So thank you. Well, thank you for this invitation because I've loved it. It truly was dessert. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Mitzi, for the great wisdom. If you want to connect with Mitzi, definitely reach out to her at her website at winthisfight.org. That's winthisfight.org. I'd love you to take Mitzi's powerful messages to heart and have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.